You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. It is Juneteenth. Good morning to those of you who are listening or on your way to work. Uh, appreciate those who have sent messages. And there have been a lot, so that is very much appreciated. Um, always gets me nervous when you do that. Like you're gonna get like two text messages. Well, then I get. I know, I know. But then I get. Seems like the like, YouTube chat mark is pretty normal, right? Yeah. From a quantity standpoint. Then I get things like this: When men who have generational wealth, Will Power's first reaction is to demonstrate hate on fellow man, not to go check on him after the clear mistake. Shows you this: respect for our fellow man is gone. Sad. Whoa. Okay. That's deep. Because like there were never, you know, I mean. We should have respect for our fellow man like we did back in the 60s when Duke and North Carolina had a brawl that suspended like 10 players for the rest of the season. You know what I mean? Yeah, because competition and testosterone just woke up yesterday. Yeah, I mean, you're driving it. As soon as he hops out of the car and Dixon hops out, it's pretty clear he's okay. Um, There is a competitive nature that comes into play for sure. But, um, you know, one of the guys, thank you to everybody that – texted john love up and working this morning no surprise love heating and air there no shock there i mean talk about a 360 needed time here in mid to late june yeah we could use them in here yeah (laughs) it's a little warm um kevin if you were a if you're a colts player and you just got done with otas what are you doing this weekend are you off r&r are you i think right now you are i think the first week or two of summer vacation you can r&r it uh, vacation it up, I would say, probably this week, potentially next. But I, I think once July gets here, don't we have to kind of ramp it back up? You know, training camp, uh, July 25th-ish, I think is the date to kind of circle on your calendar at Grand Park. We should get an official training camp schedule in about the next seven or eight days. Um, but yeah, July 25th is my expected kind of start date right around there at Grand Park. But I think this is much different than what you maybe would have like in January, February. I think when the season comes to a close, that R&R could extend much deeper than just a couple of weeks. But I think right now, you take a week, decompress a bit, maybe stretch that into two weeks. But then once July gets here, you know, I, a guy like Zaire Franklin I know is going to spend some time with Bobby Wagner, one of the you know best linebackers certainly in modern day and probably in NFL history. Um, you know, guys are going to work out together. Anthony Richardson, Gardner Minshew are going to get together with some of those Colts pass catchers. Uh, they will do some training down in Florida. So I think you are certainly building up for what you know is going to be some six month grind from there. You know, with the offseason program, Jake, coming to a close last week, I think one of the most disappointing aspects to the spring was the fact that after the draft, one of the reasons why I loved the draft the most was because I finally felt like Chris Ballard said, premium positions are going to be addressed with premium draft picks. You went quarterback, you went cornerback, you went wideout, you went offensive tackle, you took multiple cornerbacks. You took multiple offensive tackles. I don't feel like that has been, it hasn't been the norm for Ballard. So I really like that. And I think back to Andrew Luck's rookie season. And remember how much those rookies impacted? Not just Luck, obviously. Dwayne Allen, Kobe Fleener, T.Y. Hilton, Vic Ballard. Um, I mean, you got instant impact from that rookie class. And I think that really set you up for the next several years where you had the best success you've had over the last decade. And I kind of looked at this class and thought, can you get a similar contribution out of that? But if you look back on this spring that just wrapped up, and you look at the first eight draft picks, 
So basically rounds one through five. Jake, five of those eight guys missed at least three weeks of work in the spring. So I'm curious how or if that is going to stunt some of their growth, maybe stunt some of their year one impact. Obviously, Richardson was out there the whole time. He's the most important one, so that's what probably matters more than anybody else. But Juju Brent's the corner out of Warren, missed the entire spring with a wrist injury. Josh Downs has a great rookie minicamp, and then he misses a month due to a knee injury. Um, you get into the r- round five, Will Mallory, the grandson of Bill Mallory, the tight end out of Miami. He injures his foot, a tight end depth chart that looks very much up in the air. He misses virtually the entire spring. Daniel Scott, safety out of Cal, he tears his ACL. So I think when you get into the rookie impact, that is a bit of a bummer. I, I'm not acting like, oh my gosh, you know, hell's freezing over in this 2023 draft class isn't going to contribute at all. But I do think that's one aspect to the spring where when you go for 12 and 1, you like to think you can get some quick day one impact from your rookies. And for several of these guys, they're going to enter training camp with a little bit of a steeper mountain to climb just because they weren't on the field hardly at all in the spring. You know, I feel like Ballard, Kevin, I feel like this summer, and this will be interesting to me to see where this goes from this. I feel like this is the summer that Chris Ballard finally showed a little bit of humility. You know, by and I mean that in a good way. I think fans appreciate it. Um, Chris Ballard, to be honest with you, I think since the time he got here, has been pretty arrogant. Pretty arrogant, and and to a lot of fans, I think they see him as very aloof and the smartest guy in the room. And and then I think it took a lot of humility. It took a lot of maturity, professional maturity. I mean to to sit up there in a press conference at the end of last year and say, you know what, this is on me. This was unacceptable, and this is 100% on me. And I think people appreciated that. And so by doing that and then redirecting, to your point, the way that the, the, the roster was built a little bit or the way it's being built a little bit, um, he is so far making the most of kind of his second lease, if you will, because I think there are a lot of people that thought that he was getting, okay, well, you know, we're going to give you another shot here, but let's see what you can do. And the next two years are huge. I think he knows that, right? Yeah, I think you're giving him a little bit too much credit and the amount of humility that he showed. I mean, what else is he going to say? Well, totally. I agree with that. They but. just went 4-12-1. You're going to tell us that our eyes are lying to us? But he, but, but he Kevin, had no choice other than to say that. I don't know about that. I mean, if he if his job was safe, he could have sat there and said, "Listen, trust the process or whatever." Um, I, you know, he. I think a little bit of humility with maybe the draft focus, but free agency is the same old, same old. Offensive line, he's blaming all of it on the coaching staff. He's sticking with the same personnel. He's made virtually zero moves. Outside of that, um, I little bit of humility is probably the right way to say it. Like you said, but again, outside of the draft, I don't think we've seen anything different from Chris Ballard and how he's operated with this offseason. They're sitting here on 20-some million of cash from a cap space standpoint. Uh, the support for the quarterback is still a major question of mine. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I don't think you're out. alone in that. I do think there are people that are like, why have they not, you know? But by, by the way, the, the, the printer printed out uh, every the logo of every professional sports team. Boy, I, I'm nervous for you right now. It, I, not only the quantity of papers, but... The color ink. I mean, if I would have done that in junior high or high school, I'd have like in-school suspension for a week. Well, they they would do that here, but we're the only people here. Uh, Actually, we're serving in-school suspension. It's today, right? Sean Copeland just texted me. He was like, you better watch out for Jake right now with all that ink he just used. (laughs) Okay. No, hold on. I'm I'm just going to 
pull out a sheet of paper and then Mark, I want you to tell me the first athlete you think of when you see this logo. I have every sport known to man. First athlete. Mike Trout. Okay. Oh, that was easy. All right, we'll do another one. Hold on. This is great radio, I realize. Uh, hang on, th- but this is just a show. Now, there are some that... <laughs> Good luck on that one, Mark. I might have picked the most random... Literally, oh, I just I, randomly picked... I've actually been to a game there. This I, might be the most random franchise in the profession. The I'm American shocked they're still sports. in existence. I mean, it's the Ar- Phoenix Coyotes, but I... I Arizona. Arizona Coyotes. Arizona Coyotes. Coyotes. Wayne Gretzky, is that the most synonymous athlete with them? It's a pretty cool logo when you really look at it. It's like a Native American artwork. It's kind of cool. Anyway. Who do you think would have been better for the game of golf? Rory win or Ricky Fowler win? Probably Rory, right? Yeah, I'd say Rory. I think it's six and one half dozen the other. Isn't Rory, though, like, you know that he's there, uh, a full resurrection of Ricky? Like, if you could get Ricky now back into the conversation with all of them, I just feel like that brand is something that golf could use. I, I, I think the biggest challenge golf has right now Again, I'm going to come from the. I'm coming from the flyover fan. Okay, like passerby on the. You know, oh yeah, golf's on. It's a major. I'm going to watch. To me, and I know that you. I, I, I get that other people are going to be like, "This guy's an idiot." But to me, it is difficult for me to determine or or to to keep straight in my mind who is a quote-unquote live golfer and who is a stood-by-their-ground golfer. And so that storyline to me is confusing. And so one of the the areas where I think golf did get lucky by this merger or whatever else is the fact that that, because the longer that goes, the more the the ugly the uglier it gets. And, And people just start to become, they're like, I don't know, I can't keep this straight, and they check out. So that storyline itself is probably relevant right now, but I don't know. Thank goodness they got that resolved seemingly because the longer that would have gone, Kevin, the more people would have just found something else. Double-check this with Will Haskett when he joins us here in about 10 minutes, but I believe the vote for um, the public investment fund and the PGA Tour with this merger I think is not this week. At the Travelers Tournament in Connecticut, but I believe is next week at the tournament in Detroit. I want to confirm that with Will Haskett because, and I was totally good with it. It was nice to have kind of a four to four to five day break in the golf world as a fan of it from all of that. And I think the U.S. Open did provide some of that. The Wyndham Clark, did you guys watch? Look who I randomly. Uh, my diehard Mark McGuire yeah. starting to get Jeremy Giambi would be the one that I would go with. Okay. Him. Uh, did you guys watch the final putt? I know Paul Eisinger seemed a bit nervous with all the fans potentially like storming the green there. I did not. I saw it. Yeah. Were you? Were, did you have those same nerves? No, I didn't yeah. think so. I actually thought it was a decent scene. You know, yeah. get all the fans around that, and what hell the, the most two lively I saw it all weekend. It seemed. Yeah, like. major issues with tickets distributed, and it was way too corporatey. And maybe that's just LA. Correct. There were. What did I see? It was like 25% of the available tickets, even at all, were distributed to the general public. And I guess the like members that. then like bought up a ton of the general admission tickets. They had some like grandstands that were member only. I, I was really disappointed about that. I, I did, and I know that you had mentioned this, Kevin. I thought about this. I think it's $250,000 is the initial membership fee to the Los Angeles Country Club is what it's called, right? Correct. Uh-huh. Uh, how much must that land be worth? Yeah, I, I I mean, let me tell you something. I was in LA for the Long Beach race in April. 
I was driving to dinner in West Hollywood and past, I kind of went off the main grid to go through a side street to get to the restaurant where I was going. And on this side street were houses that were nice, nice houses, but looked like the houses that you would see. I'm trying to think of like an area of Indianapolis to compare it to like Cold Springs Road, like the, the, the houses that you would see at like 20th and Cold Springs Road, like nice bungalow brick houses, probably two bedrooms and 1600 square feet. So I, I actually <clears throat> looked at the address on one of them. And then when I got to the restaurant, I, I zillowed it, you know, 2.2 million for like a quarter acre, 1600 square foot home and a decent area. Can you imagine what the property must be worth that that country club sit a golf right. course sits on. I mean, hell, just look at the homes around it. You know, they, they had some unbelievable drone shots of like Lionel Richie's property to the right of the fourth hole, the Playboy Mansion. That's no longer the Playboy Mansion. The right of 14T. I, I don't know if this is factual. I mean, I'm sure it would take a lot to like look up, but I thought I heard it's the most expensive property in the United States that a golf course is on. I mean, it's got to be. Yeah. Now they have 36 holes as well, which contributes to obviously the vastness of it um but yeah that certainly i I was very disappointed though from an atmosphere standpoint environment standpoint now roy and ricky fowler did absolutely nothing to inject life into that crowd nothing in the final round i i thought the only pressure that wyndham clark really felt in the final round was u.s open pressure nothing from his playing competitors and that to me was disappointing from and especially in roy's case guys that have been there you know when you're a group ahead that guy gets to watch you hit you know, 90% of your golf shots all day from behind you. And if Rory's able to make a birdie putt or two, now all of a sudden that guy's back in the fairway thinking about it. Instead, Wyndham Clark's sitting there in the 14th fairway, a 280-yard three-wood into the green, and he watches Roy McIlroy just look like a hack out there making a bogey from 120 yards, and boom, Wyndham Clark hits probably the golf shot of the tournament to that point, hits three-wood on the green, two-putt birdie, and that gave him the cushion he needed then because he did bogey 15, he bogeyed 16, but a hell of an up and down on 17, and quite the two-putt on, on, on 18. I feel bad recycling all of these. These are beautiful. Literally, I have sitting before me, that is like 200 pages uh, of the printout, beautiful color printout of the logo of every professional team in the United States. Yeah, that. Um, I'm a little nervous about the color ink bill here in the month of June <laughs> I at mean, Radio 1. Yeah, well... How many paper? I mean, Jake, that's... I, honestly, I, I I have no idea how that happened. You printed out like a term paper or memoir, and it's just... Why don't logos. you just leave the MLB scores up on the screen? It's... Listen, this is an easier way of me... This is the way I do things. That's the way it's going to be. Scotty's out for the week, so one... Not, because not what if I have, the, what if I have the MLB scores up on the screen, and then all of a sudden it's time to talk about like golf, and I need the results? Well, you click well the then next you have tab. a golf tab. And a fever box you, score have you, tab. Have you tried using this computer? It's run by a chipmunk that's on a smoke break. Maybe it's literally operating. It's literally computer. like dial-up internet. Well, you know. Now, you guys are going to sit here and throw me down the river, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. How often do we see the little oscillating dial thing on here? This from a hookfish. Uh, LACC Real Estate, thank you for this. Estimated to be worth $8 billion. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable, right? That guy's a great follow on Twitter, by the way. Joe Pompliano. He's like Eight. Darren Ravel, but actually manageable. Eight billion. Ho-hum, right? 
same as Coffin Golf Course here downtown in Indianapolis. All right, he's Jake Query. Shockingly, um, he's having technological issues here. <laughs> I'm not on this Monday morning. You literally just printed what 122 logos. Yeah, of professional. I, you never teams? know when you might need a logo of the Dallas Stars. I've got it right here. Do you need it? All right, let's head to the Payless Liquors Hotline. Let's talk more about Wyndham Clark winning the United States Open. Will Haskett joins us from PGA Tour Radio. Well, I think to you know a, a large, large chunk of the audience watching yesterday, Wyndham Clark was a relatively new name, very accomplished collegiate player, though, and I think you were just kind of waiting for, hey, when is he going to join the other Oklahoma State guys? Um, you know, near the top of the professional game. I know he transferred to Oregon after that. Uh, what can you tell us, though, about Wyndham Clark? Well, I think we were all waiting for it, really, up until the last month. So, I mean, it was a guy who took advantage of committing himself in a way that he had never committed himself as a professional and doing all of the little things to get better in all the areas he needed to get better in. And then it just so happened that when it all clicked for him, then it also clicked for him in a major. I mean, his track record in majors, I mean, yesterday was, or this week was his seventh start, I think, in a major and hadn't finished inside the top 70. I mean, this isn't exactly as if, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I've always had the game against the biggest fields. Well, it was, you know, really, really good with a guy who got his card relatively quickly on the PGA Tour and was able to sort of maintain that, but was kind of slotted into that category of a guy who's going to be on tour for 15 years is going to make a lot of money, maybe win once or twice, and that was going to be it. And then all of a sudden this season, he was putting together consistent finishes. He probably could or should have won the team event in New Orleans two months ago, and then went the designated event at Wells Fargo. Um, and then now is a major champion. So it, it has happened relatively quickly for a guy that I think always had the talent, but I think didn't have the all-around game to be one of the world's best. And so he's become, in 2023, an elite iron player, and that's really the major differentiator from most of the guys at the top of the sport because prior to this year, he was really known for a guy who could just absolutely bomb it, just incredible length. Um, had a pretty good putter. It's gotten a little bit streakier as he's gotten older, but that was kind of he's kind of a two trick guy. Like he could really drive it, he could really putt it, but everything in between could be a little bit sketchy at times from a high level standpoint. And not only for him to just sort of have this, I guess, validation of all the work that he put in to win this tournament, but to hit the shot. I mean, to be under the spotlight really for two straight days and hit the shots he needed to hit especially more so yesterday when it became obvious it was going to be either him or Rory and he couldn't just kind of hide in this massive leaderboard of people. That to me was more impressive because he had to step up yesterday with his guts obviously just churning and figure out a way to get it done. You know, I, I, I swear, Will, I thought you said he could absolutely vomit. And I thought, well, I mean, you know, I don't know if he was that nervous. but I almost did. I think he looked like he was going to at one point in time yesterday. <laughs> but vomit but, no, is what you said. Yeah. Um, I remember Will. Will Haskett is our guest on the Pedestigers Hotline. I remember several years ago asking Will Power, obviously before he won Indy, but asking him about, because Will Power had been a road and street course specialist, basically, who had yet to win on an oval. And I remember asking him about it, and he said, you know, I get the feeling that if I do win an oval and kind of get that off my back, then they'll kind of come in bunches. And I'm curious if golf is like that. You know, when a guy wins, I mean, we're looking at a guy here in Clark that that won his first tournament, what, six weeks ago. Yeah. I'm not saying that that means all of a sudden he's going to become the guy, but is there a psychological aspect to it, Will, for professional golfers that they can hang around and hang around, but once they finally break through, then that that 
level of the mental game is gone for them, and it's one thing less to worry about. Yes, if you think the mental hurdle was the reason for it. It's kind of like the, I could even flip this and put it on Rory. You know, once Rory wins the next major, could he win like three or four in a two or three year window of time? Yeah, probably also, because you feel like there's a little bit of a mental hurdle to, you know, to will putts into the hole or whatever it might sort of take for Rory. I know we'll probably end up talking about Rory here eventually. So, yes, I think a little bit for Wyndham Clark in that regard of just feeling the confidence of, oh, I do belong out here and I can win with these guys. But I think he's a probably a better example of somebody who really put the time in to be like, look, I'm deficient in certain ways and I'm going to get better at this. And now that he's a better all-around player, he puts himself in a position to win more often. And it's really kind of a probability game, right? Like a lot of guys in professional golf, you know, maybe like Cameron Young's a great example of it right now. Like, you know, finished runner-up at a couple of majors last year was kind of on, on the cusp there. And from just a pure probability standpoint, probably should have won once, you know? And then when he finally does, it's like, oh, that's the law of averages sort of evening things out. I think there's a little bit of both with Wyndham, the way that he has played in his career, but there's no doubt that he put in the time this year to just be a better player. Now, is that sustainable? That's the million-dollar question. We never really know. I mean, does he have the game to continue doing this for a little while? Sure, but he's got to stay healthy. There are a lot of other players that are super talented out there. Um, is, Is he right now in the peak of his entire professional golf career? Like it's really unfair to sort of say, but there's a real, real reality that he is. Like you know, he may never play better golf the rest of his professional life than he's played over the last month and a half, two months, and that's okay. Also, it's really hard to play at that level. But he's got a U.S. Open championship. He's a major champion, and uh, the party's going to continue for a little while for Wyndham, and you can never take that away from him. Well, let's move on to Rory. And again, Will Haskett with us here from PGA Tour Radio. You know, when Rory goes out in the group in front of Will or in front of Wyndham Clark, it's such a golden opportunity to have Wyndham Clark watch you hit 90% of your golf shots and then have to hit that golf shot right after he watches you maybe make a birdie in front of you and Rory did that on one and that was it that was it for the entire day and you know Wyndham Clark's just watching miss 30 footer after miss 30 footer and I don't there were definitely shots that Wyndham Clark had to hit yesterday where he was tied for the lead with guys but for the most part you know I would say for the whole back nine he had a lead the entire time and again credit to him the up and down on nine and 11 the two par threes outstanding you know when he leaked some oil on 15 and 16 hell of an up and down on 17 then the two putt on 18 but I just felt like the pressure Wyndham Clark felt yesterday was mostly U.S. Open first time in a major in this moment pressure you know not necessarily Rory pressure, or obviously throw in Ricky, throw in Scotty Scheffler, other guys as well. I thought that was the missing ingredient from Rory yesterday is he never made that putt or the missed opportunity on eight to par five to really all of a sudden say, Wyndham Clark, I'm here right next to you on the leaderboard, and I'm not moving from that from that spot. Yeah, it would have been a lot more, I think, entertaining had Wyndham Clark had to play a hole knowing that if I make bogey here, I lose the lead. Correct. Right, on the back nine, and that never really happened. And there were multiple moments you can point to. I thought that him making the turn and hitting a few sketchy shots, you know, after he makes the really spectacular bogey at eight, you know, after driving and whiffing at it once, you know, left of that green, and then you're right. Like, he easily could have compounded that with another bogey at nine. He tugged a couple of shots left. He makes some incredible up and downs. And some of that's great skill and gut. And some of that, you know, maybe is a little bit of the luck of the lot. I mean, the shot on 11 was crazy. I mean, to hit that clipper off of a bare Bermuda lie was, that took a lot of stones to try and hit that shot. And he did it. 
but you're right about Rory. Um, if you know he, he wills a couple of putts in here or there, it's different. If he steps up and hit a, a golf shot, I think the difference too in the round yesterday is that a couple of the birdies that Wyndham Clark made, including the pivotal hole, which was 14, the par five in the back, is that he stepped up and hit shots that sort of gifted him the birdie, that gave him the birdie, that gave him the breather. And outside of the two swings out of the gate from Rory on one that set up, you know, the two putt birdie. Everything else is really, really solid. It was what you'd want from somebody who's maybe leading the U.S. Open, but it didn't put him in a position to just make that one birdie to tie or that one birdie to go ahead. And by bogeying 14, and he's had a run last couple of weeks, like he's been in contention for three straight weeks, including at Memorial, and he's butchered a couple of par fives, which is just not what Rory seems to do. So for him to, you know, whiff a shot into the bunker, and really I thought, I mean, I guess that ball was embedded on 14 for Rory, but I thought got it a tremendous break. Oh, but hell that of a ball break. Somehow embedded. I mean, if it if it's not embedded, then we're looking at maybe seven, and then an absolute walk in the park for Wyndham Clark. But yeah, it's that was one of those situations where like you are the best driver of the golf ball maybe ever, and you step up there and you can't find that fairway at 14. According to I think it was what John Wood was with that group, and even he said on the broadcast, like I thought that he had a good enough lie to at least try and you know scoot this thing up around the green and give himself a better look at making birdie. And for you to walk away with six, and then Wyndham Clark turns around and just absolutely laces that three wood up there and gives himself that birdie. That to me was the turning point, and that's where Rory has that. That was his moment. Like he played really, really smart really good tee to green golf yesterday but 14 with the way that that leaderboard was shaping out was the place to go and do it make the birdie and then make the guy behind you have to stay in that tie with you and instead we ended up with a kind of a three-shot swing and a really in the snap of the fingers and thankfully Wyndham made it a little bit entertaining by gassing a couple of shots down the stretch but I really kind of felt like that golf tournament was over after 14. We had this debate um, with my in-laws on Saturday night, and obviously nothing happened on Sunday, so I guess it's kind of a moot point, but I'm just curious your thoughts on it. What would have been better for the game of golf, a Rory win or a Ricky win? Um, That's a great question. I think those in the game of golf would have preferred seeing Ricky win it just as kind of a career achievement award type of thing, and, and also a a tremendous uh, tip of the cap to a guy that kind of bottomed out two years ago and has climbed all the way back to being in contention. I think right now in the moment, Rory McIlroy's brand and gravitas over the sport is so great that him being a major champion probably means more to the game of golf in this particular moment. So I think the answer to the question is Rory, just because even though Ricky is, you know, an incredible brand ambassador for the sport, you know, Rory's on that elite pedestal of guy that from every corner of the globe, I think that win would resonate a little bit stronger. So I'd say slight advantage. I thought that Rory winning probably has the greater impact on the game and in everything that's going on in the sport as well. Will Haskett is our guest. He's on the Payless Liquors hotline. Will, this is a really elementary question here. You ready? Please. But I want you to educate for me or people whose golf – knowledge is even below mine okay mm-hmm. like in basketball you've got or baseball we'll use baseball you know you got the five tool player right they can run the bases yep. they can feel they can hit whatever in golf there are how many tools to being a great golfer there's short game meaning you're putting there's driving yeah there's intermediate what do you call it like your what your chipping game basically yeah. we specifically measure i mean statistics now advanced analytics we're measuring four aspects of the game so effectively you're off the tee game so driving the golf ball 
your approach game, which is any golf shot into a green between, well, I guess officially 40 yards and, and right. up. Um, and then short game would be anything around the green, which is really hard. I mean, it's measured. It's probably the least scientifically valid stat we have because no short game shot around the green is the same depending on lie and, and all other sort of stuff. So whether you're in a bunker or heavy rough or what your lie is like, yada, yada, yada. And then obviously putting, which is the easiest thing to measure success of because you know, putts are all relatively the same, you know, um, you know, they're measured by distance in terms of how we measure it. So those are really the four areas that we measure. Now within that, there are buckets where we could measure sand play versus play from the rough where it's worth pitch shots from the fairway, things of that nature. But for the most part, we're measuring guys on off the tee approach around the green or short game shots and putting. And obviously you have some guys, John Daly comes to mind that made a living off of being like outstanding in one area and maybe average in the others or you know what I mean offsetting different areas of those four but in today's golf the three golfers that have the highest score amongst the four or the most balance amongst the four areas are which yeah so I mean so think about this like all of those different areas we can measure we can total those up and we get what is effectively your strokes gain total which is your average compared to the field which is also just a reflection of your score. So what you're asking is, you know, Scotty Scheffler right now is without a doubt the best player in the game statistically over the last several months. It's actually not even close, and the numbers that he's putting up are video game comical, how good they are, except for putting. Like, his numbers are so good in the other three areas, and he's barely an average putter. In fact, he may still be a little bit sub-average over the last three months, which is amazing to think because he now has 17 top 12 finishes in a row, including three in majors. And yet he's putting like the 45th guy in the field every week, or in some cases, the dead last guy in the field. He was almost dead last in putting at Memorial two weeks ago and finished one shot out of a playoff, which is just amazing to sort of think about. So he obviously isn't the answer to your question, but just kind of put into perspective, you can be the best player statistically in the game right now and be average or below average at one of those four categories. Um, The best all-around players, the, the first two are easy. It's John Rahm and Patrick Cantlay. Third right now, I think, is somewhere in kind of the Tyrrell Hatton realm of category. I don't have all the stats in front of me, but the easiest answer all the time is John Rahm and Patrick Cantlay. They are the two best, most balanced golfers. They don't have a flaw in their game. They're phenomenal chippers, wonderful iron players, elite combination of driving. They're both significantly longer than average and also very accurate compared to their speed. And they're both really good. I mean, putters, putting is always streaky. There are very few people who show up every week and are better putters than the rest of the field. Um, but those two typically don't have many bad weeks. So it's one and two, it's kind of one A and one B in terms of best all around player in the sport. And then there's a whole lot of guys, I think, competing for that third spot. So sorry for the longer um, answer there, but those are the two guys that always stand out to mind to me. Well, it was really refreshing to have a nice four or five day break from all of the drama from the public investment fund and the merger with the PGA Tour and that storyline. Unfortunately, that now becomes uh, top of mind in the world of golf, probably until the next major, which would be the British Open to round out the major year coming up in a month. Uh, What is next, do you think? Is it more details from a press release that was initially released and was very vague on details? And correct me if I'm wrong, but we get like a policy board vote on what it could look like coming up not this week but next week at detroit yeah i don't have really any timing or details on it i mean i think it's it's yeah we've had two really good weeks of golf in the 
kind of the fallout of this whole situation. My last last night, I kind of left the TV on after the coverage was over with, and then when I came back downstairs to kind of clean up, like WTHR had the news on, and they were already talking about congressional hearings about this. And by the way, they got like six of the names and facts wrong, but you know, local local media for you. But anyway, uh, I digress. It was. I don't really know what the next step is in terms of information. We don't have any information. And I think it's kind of funny that the biggest news story right now is Congress wants to talk to this person or this committee wants to do this. It's like, well, how can we question something that we don't even have? We don't have an agreement. No one's really necessarily signed anything. It was sort of a handshake agreement that literally just stopped litigation. Everything else still has to be worked out. So there, nothing's been approved. Nothing's been signed. So, but we're already upset that it's violating something. Like, I don't really know. I don't know. I'm confused as to why a lot of the ancillary, you know, governing bodies are already concerned when we don't even have, we don't even know what it's going to look like. So to answer your question in kind of a roundabout way, I think the next step or two is the PJ tour still has announced it's scheduled for next year. So that's going to give us at least a framework from which I'm sure more people are going to speculate. Does this mean that there's going to be overlap here? Or what does that do for, you know, live schedule? Does live end up announcing its own schedule for 2024 sometime thereafter? And then I'm still thinking it's going to be a couple of months away from both sides sort of hammering out whatever the, the organizational agreement is and, and processes. But again, if we believe everything from the original press release, there's going to be a for-profit entity that's an umbrella that's a combination of the PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, and the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. And then they oversee their... That, that helps to bring in money from a for-profit venture to these other existing entities. And so if that is the case, then the PGA Tour continues operating the way that it's operating, the DP World Tour operates the way that it's operating, and then Live is going to operate in whatever way they still see a path forward. But, I, again, we don't know like what that umbrella trickle-down means in terms of working these groups together maybe more strategically. Because keep on, the PGA Tour has a strategic partnership with the DP World Tour. Does this then allow them to do more cross events does that impact the schedule for next year until we see a schedule we really don't know um i guess until we see a schedule kevin we don't know how to speculate further because right now it's all speculative yeah again so vague on details okay last one well i don't know how much information you can share on this but i I thought the atmospheres were pretty weak all week long at la country club i'm sure a lot of it has to do with just la in general but you know i feel like riviera and some of the other tournaments out there you don't necessarily have as lack of a juice if you will i just expect more for a major championship how much of this was simply like lacc as a country club and their ability to corporate the hell out of it and snag up so many of the general admission tickets yeah, there was some good reporting out there, and you can find it. I think Golf Digest maybe had a piece, or Golf.com, or somebody you know kind of reported on the fact that compared to some U.S. Open venues, just because of the actual footprint of the property, you weren't going to be able to have 45,000 or 50,000 dailies, and it was down to 25,000. A lot of that was allocated to uh, corporate hospitality. So the people that were actually out there kind of walking the golf course was a very limited number compared to other years. And I think there was also, it's just weird to say that there wasn't enough space to accommodate all those people. And then to say at the same time, that there wasn't, there was a lot of space away from the greens, but that was kind of how the golf course was set up. Um, so while the actual footprint, 300 acres or whatever, didn't really allow for 50,000 people to be on site. Once you had the 9,000 or whatever were actually on the ground, a lot of times they were, 
you know, kind of distant from some of the greens. And so I think that's what created a lot of the environment. I mean, we a lot of us have covered sports in Southern California. I wouldn't say that it's the most raucous of locations to sure. go to. You know, it's kind of a cool town. Um, and because it was hard to get to, because tickets were limited, because it was expensive, I don't think you had as much of a pilgrimage of golf fans like you would a Shinnecock or a Midwestern venue where it's easy for a lot of people to kind of get in cars and drive to places. And I think that contributes to environment too. Cause a lot of times that environment are, are people who are, you know, they're spending thousands to travel. Like that's going to, that's their Super Bowl. You know, they're getting on a plane and they're going to wherever that venue is. And so I think that had something to do with it. Um, it was an interesting week. I mean, from the scoring out of the gate to, you know, a lot of people doing that, there were a lot of very strong opinions, both players and, you know, esteemed members of the media about what this past week was like and it'll be 16 years until it's back there again and we'll see if it feels any different although i have a funny feeling we won't have any idea remembering most of this stuff that we either complained about or championed 16 years from now when there's another u.s open there i'm telling you though i'm going to make a prediction for you guys and i mentioned this last week and i'm going to stand by it i have nothing to base it on other than just a gut feeling and my gut's a little bigger than it used to be um the back to the the conversation about the Saudi investment fund. Golf is their gateway. That they are, they already have obviously some some monetary investment in American sports, but this is their test balloon. Not even test balloon. This is their entry, and they they are coming for other sports. And their money is going to be. They are going to tinker with. Uh, I don't know which one it'll be. One of the other major sports leagues in this country will have interruption from Saudi money. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, again, the big question is, I mean, if you want to draw a line in the sand of where the money comes from, I'm fully here for it. I'll fully support that passionate sort of plea. The question is, what does it do to the actual competition product? If you're in for loving sports and loving sport only, is it going to change how golfers play golf? I don't necessarily know. I mean, I think it has from a live standpoint. But if the investment is just an ROI situation and they want to invest in the PGA Tour and the PGA Tour is able to maintain its normal business practices, then does it change the sport that I'm covering? If And we've done this hypothetical a million times too, Jake. If, if it hadn't been Roger Penske, but it had been a foreign entity that invested in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and made all of the same investment in, in uh, amenities and fan experience and just wanted to turn a profit, like I want this race to be good, but I want the fans to be happy with it. Would people be angry? Absolutely. But if the product continued to get better and the sport was better because of it, that's just a separate well, conversation and, and question. Well, it goes right. back. It's coming for us. It goes back to the question that that I have asked to both you guys, and, and we don't know the answer and won't know the answer for some time. And that is: was Live Golf created because the Saudi investment group felt like they could create what they thought was a better golf experience, or was it created to? opened the doorways to them forcing PGA to move their money in. It's one of yeah. those two. I think it's probably the latter, but we'll find out, right? I don't I don't think it's a perfect answer one way or the other, but I think, as, and we talked about this two weeks ago, as soon as this thing came together relatively quickly and relatively privately, I think it was a white flag from both sides in some way, shape, or form. Now, whatever that... Whatever the balance of that is, I don't know. But the PGA Tour is certainly saying, and they've been very public about that, is that we couldn't win an arms race over the course of time in terms of money. But I think also the PIF being like, listen, we're losing $500 million a year on a golf tour that no one's paying attention to. Because, again, at the end of the day, most sports fans will call you out for a bad product. 
And I think they also recognize that. And they're like, well, if we want to legitimately play in the golf space, we've got to go to where legitimate golf is. And what they helped to fund, not necessarily their full idea in Live Golf, was not what they deemed to be a successful golf product since its launch last year. Um, so I think it's a little bit of both. Um, and that, again, gives me, uh, again, if I want to walk away from the sport that you know puts food on my kid's table out of just sheer, like, um, you know, like a, a hard stance principle. I, I mean, I guess I can be called you know a hypocrite for it, but at the same point in time, like I, if this helps just keep the sport that I love moving forward and maybe invest in it in a positive way, then I guess I'm just going to kind of put my tail between my legs and keep going golf because it's a wait and see approach right now. Well, last last thing, I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit. U.S. Open back to you know the, the Saudis and the PGA Tour and everything. But going back to Wyndham Clark for just a second, it is quite amazing to me. Like if you'd have told me on Saturday night, hey Kevin, uh, Rory, Ricky Fowler, Dustin Johnson, Xander Shoffley, and I forget Scotty Scheffler, those five guys, none of them are going to beat Wyndham Clark tomorrow. Just like straight up in the 18th, you know, in the final round of the tournament, none of them shot better than 70. I, I can't tell you how much money I would have lost on that bet. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that there was certainly pressure. I don't think Ricky was going to have it. I think we could sort of see the diminishing returns as the week went on. I think Scotty might have been the hottest guy out of that group, yeah. considering how he yeah. finished Saturday. I thought it was kind of. A, I thought Scotty would win as well. I just thought that there was going to be enough early nerves in Wyndham Clark. But I will say this: I mean, two things about Wyndham Clark is that he was given probably a perfect leaderboard of stars around him to just sort of draft, even though he was in front, but to draft off of the energy and the expectations of everybody else. Like, no one gave him a chance to win. So if it's a five-shot lead on the first tee, it's a different feeling for Wyndham Clark. Like, he had to hold off Rory, who's pulling a giant gallery in front of him. He was with Ricky, and there was a great nugget that he shared last night from a sports psychologist who said, the night before, he's like, look, everybody's pulling for Ricky in your group. Like, no one wants to see you win. So every time you hear go Ricky, say to yourself, I'm going to show them who they should actually be rooting for. Like, And he and Ricky are tight. Like, Ricky is his mentor, a couple years older than him, and was ahead of him at Oklahoma State. And still, like, I really love that message from a sports psychology standpoint is no one believes in you. Go show them a reason to believe in you. Like, put that chip on your shoulder. And he had some shots. I mean, early on, like, he was not deterred on the front nine. He did not come out timid in that tournament yesterday. And so I think a little bit of being that guy that no one expected probably helped him a little bit way more than if it was three other guys you maybe hadn't heard of or three non-superstars that are at the top of the board and they're all out there just trying to figure out who's not going to gas it. Well, outstanding stuff. Appreciate all the um, uh, segments you've hopped on with us over the last few weeks. Hopefully, things will be a bit quiet between now and the British Open, but I find that hard to believe. Uh, thank uh, you. Uh, uh, British Open, yes. Uh, 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 no, we're very excited. Tiger is officially out, KB. I don't know if you saw that last week. Officially out, so there will be no Tiger. Disappointing. Say that again. Tiger's officially out. No, you know, yeah, you boy. Seen the news. Thanks for breaking my heart a little extra, yeah. as if financially I didn't have enough invested in Aurora <laughs> yesterday. Thank you, Will. See you guys. All right, coming up on Thursday night, you'll have the 2023 NBA draft. Pick seven, 26, 29, 32, and 50 for the Indiana Pacers. And the activity expected to be pretty rampant heading into Thursday. Talk more about that. Tony East joins us, covers the Pacers for SI. Locked on Pacers. Always a great listen. Uh, Tony, let's focus maybe on the prospects here to start off. 
Who is a name that you think should be more in play at number seven, but you don't believe either the fan base or the draft pundits have given enough credit to? My answer is going to be Anthony Black. Um, just the things I value with a high pick and the things that seem important with upside would be just the ability to create a shot, or create a shot for your teammates, make make something happen, make the defense get into rotation, right? We see those players become more and more valuable seemingly every year, and Anthony Black from Arkansas can do that, right? He's so shifty, he can get past his defender, he can get into the lane. He's six foot seven, so he's usually taller than than his matchup, and I don't, I don't know if he'll make the most sense for the Pacers because they have a lot of guys who can handle the ball and create shots already, but he, because he's so tall at six seven, if you can be kind of a wing creator type and defend a couple guys that aren't guards every night, I mean, I think he's really good. I think he... He's going to be valuable in this top ten, but not sure he's the perfect pick for the Pacers, though I would understand it. I'm pretty high on him. Tony, my understanding is that Grady Dick had a pretty good workout, and he could shoot the ball, flat out can shoot the ball. The kid out of Kansas who's young, but he is also 6'7", and a scorer. I think with Grady Dick, what you're looking at is a guy that can give you perimeter shooting, but needs to grow defensively. Does Indiana get overly intrigued by the first half, or are they strictly focused on somebody that can guard, that can develop an offensive game, as opposed to an offensive guy that has to develop guarding? Yeah, I think defense is is important for them, obviously, and they'll they'll consider that. And I think Kevin Pritchard even said that they'll you know look at defense for for guys that they're picking. But he's the best shooter in the draft by a good amount, uh, Grady Dick is, and it's not that he's just that. You know, when I was watching Kansas, and as, as people have kind of studied him, it's like when guys run him off the line with a hard closeout, like he can do some stuff. He can put it on the floor twice and make a mid-range jumper or get to the paint. Or, you know, it's, it's not like he's just a one-trick pony, but his defense is pretty, you know, suspect at this stage, and a lot of prospects are, but his is particularly, and uh, the shooting might just be undeniable, right? Like, shooting is so valuable of the top 10 teams in three-point percentage last year. Nine of them made the playoffs, right? The Nuggets were an amazing three-point shooting team in the postseason. They won the championship, right? Shooting is immensely important. You could never fault a team for wanting more shooting, but for a guy that, you know, it, it, it's questionable what the rest of his skills will be in the NBA, it'll be interesting to see if the Pacers do pick him, how much they value just that outside shooting alone. It's T East NBA on Twitter. Tony East does an outstanding job in covering the Pacers. He's with us now on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Tony, I I view a guy like Brian Windhorst as pretty credible when it comes to you know comments he makes about NBA teams around the league. So I wouldn't just throw this out there because it's you know any schmuck saying this. But you know you have Windhorst late last week saying I've been told that Indiana's been trying to get wing players. Duh, uh, they've been trying to move out of seven to get a high level wing player. That's a little different. And then he also says I think they might be able to if they're motivated. When you read that report, what stands out to you if anything? Yeah, him and Chris Haynes reported that the same day. Two of the more plugged-in guys in in the whole kind of landscape of, of NBA insiders. And, you know, I think it's hard to always say, but, you know, after last year with the Rudy Gobert trade just being so crazy and the, the star market being so weird, is if you're motivated, it always makes me think that maybe the price is really high if for a lot of the guys who could be available who kind of fit that mold or just – it would take maybe more than people think to get that player, and that's how the NBA is. Wings who are very good, especially on both ends of the court, are impossibly hard to get these days and cost a ton to trade for. And, 
you know, this dates back for a while. But even like DeJounte Murray went for three first rounders last year, and he can really defend and he can really score. And he's not even away, he's a guard. Uh, and the Hawks didn't even do that well. But, you know, that, that's just kind of the cost of doing business for good players on both ends of the court these days who have, you know, the potential to really elevate your team. So it makes sense why the Pacers want to need a wing, obviously. You know, you, you said that even when proposing the question. You know, but getting that player, getting someone of that caliber is so expensive that the motivation part is, is always something that, the Pacers have talked about, right? The cost can't be so prohibitive that it's not worth it, right? They've said that in the past. So if they view this as the right time to get the star wing or if that player is available for the right price to them, I think that's what motivation comes down to is, are they willing to meet that price? Is now the time? Do they have the resources to do it? Because, you know, they are pretty early in the rebuild still, right? They have to weigh a lot of factors when thinking about this stuff. I know speculating is probably not your favorite game, but, you know, when I read that, Report and I think to myself, okay, OG Ananobi is the first name that pops in my head. I, I struggle to maybe get past Ananobi or don't have a great, I don't know, is Jalen Brown a name? But any names kind of pop into your head when you hear something like that? Ananobi is the, the name for me as well, yeah. And no one ever knows with Toronto anymore what they're going to do. They just hired a new coach, but he only has one year left before a player option on his contract. It's really hard to kind of assess his value and you know, there were some murmurs about the Pacers offering their pick package for him back in the trade deadline but then right their pick package would have been worse because they were kind of in the playoff play-in mix at the time now their top pick is known as seven like that's a lot to give up for a guy with potentially just one year left on his deal in Ananobi so like they probably have enough ammo to, to get him if they're, uh, to use the wind horse word, motivated to do so, right? But who knows exactly what that price will be or what Toronto's looking to do. As for others, you know, I, I, everybody's pointed to Mikael Bridges for forever. It doesn't seem like he'll be available. Cam Johnson's a free agent, but maybe some sign-and-trade finagle possibilities if the Nets move on from him for some reason. Jalen Brown's really good, of course. Obviously, he'd fit amazing next to Tyree Talburton, but it doesn't seem like the Celtics would want pick. It seems like they'd want really fantastic players next to Jason Tatum because they're a title contender, so I'm not sure that's the cleanest fit ever. It's hard to think of available wings, though, because teams covet them so much that they don't want to trade them away unless they absolutely have to or in a you know kind of over-the-barrel situation. And so many teams in the NBA are trying to win right now. It's very unique, and it's a good thing for the NBA, but it makes it harder to acquire talent if you're a team like the Pacers. So, Tony, every team in the NBA is in pursuit of a ring, and congratulations to you. You're going to get one within the year, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I am. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, uh, I beat the Nuggets to a ring by one day, I believe, was how the timeline shook out for me. And you were in New York City. Is that where you got engaged? Yeah, bro- uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park, right by the right by the Brooklyn Bridge, obviously. There is no greater city yeah. probably in the world than New York City. Good I work, Tony love East. New York City. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was uh, the perfect place for it, and... We got to see something on Broadway the night before, which was awesome. We would love going to see shows uh, when we can. So, yeah, it was a fantastic trip. Uh, really fun to, to be out there when when I was. And really nerve-wracking moment. I didn't think I'd be nervous, but I was. Really? Okay. I know. Did, I know. You, did you have, like, you know, did you make sure that, like, somebody was videotaping for Instagram yeah. and the whole deal, right? I mean, you got to yeah, do it the right the way. coordination going on, yeah. We had <laughs> friends there. Well, they were very helpful, obviously, as well. My wife saw the ring, or at least what she thought was the ring in my pot. I had one of those like hooded sweatshirt pouches on. She saw it, you know, in in the pouch. She's like, "What is that?" And I try to play it off as that was my wallet. 
Uh, that did not go over very well. <laughs> so yeah, Nice work. Safe, safe to say I ruined it about an hour early. Uh, Tony East with us here. Uh, the draft coming up on Thursday night. Again, number seven is right now where the Pacers sit. Uh, Tony, if I gave you uh, two piles of names, one pile has Jarris Walker and Taylor Hendricks in that pile. The other pile has every other player in the draft, and the Pacers are making the pick at seven. Which pile are you grabbing? Uh, probably the first pile, honestly. I mean, they, they're just such perfect fits, Kevin. You know, and it's not that it's not just that they're perfect fits; it's that they're really good too. Like this actually worked out really well for the Pacers in that when they really need forwards and they're trying to, to to hit the accelerator a little bit after a good season, a lot of the guys in the top ten can play on the wing or can play forward. And there are other good players, good fits. Whatever came with more Asar Thompson, they're good players. They can. Spotted on the wing, they can have upside, but I mean Walker and Hendricks are just absolutely perfect fits what the Pacers need with their defense. They have the upside. They, you know, can play the four. Hendricks can really shoot it. Walker has some creation upside and in high school had the ball all the time despite not really showing as much with the ball at Houston. Like they just they're just such I keep saying the same words over and over. I won't do it again, but they would be awesome for what the Pacers kinda need and so if they stay at seven, it makes a ton of sense to me that they would pick one of those guys and, and be happy with it. I would understand if they picked a number of guys, certainly, but those two just seem like they would slide in so well with the team and what they what they need and our long-term fits. And usually I don't think about fit too much with the draft, right? You just NBA teams change rosters so much and change players so much that it's impossible to kind of think about what the Pacers could even look like in three, four years, but Given Halliburton's contract status, Matherin's contract status, those guys will be around for a while. They need to at least consider somewhat what you know the player they pick could look like next to those guys in the future. Tony, when you look at the second pick in this draft, I mean, we know almost with well with zero question, unless something disastrous happens, that Webbyama is going number one to San Antonio. But the second pick, Charlotte has it. They have brought back, apparently, this week they will bring in again both Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson. That's the report. What I'm curious about is it would seem to me that whichever player they select at number two, it does not in any way really alter the draft because there is such a clear-cut top three. In other words, Charlotte doesn't really have any potential to redirect the way the draft is going to go, correct? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. You know, whoever they pick it to, the other one will go at three. So uh, unless there's some wild trade potentially, but I mean, the price to get up there is going to be so high because there is a clear top three. Tony, when you look at that that trio of picks, 26, 29, 32, if you put on your Kevin Pritchard hat, like in an ideal world, how would you manage those three selections? It's really tricky because they're so close, right? You could get a really similar quality of player with any of them, and the Pacers have little need for a player of that quality this coming season. And, um, you know, you don't want to look too short-sighted and just look at this coming year and say, you know, they can't fit in too many rookies because, you know, the way the new CBA is set up, rookie skill contracts and young players who can contribute at all are, are so valuable, right? They're like, if they made one of those picks, it would make good logical sense just because, you know, Halberton's going to be expensive and Turner already got his extension and who knows what's going to happen with Buddy Hill and Matherin's going to be expensive and they're going to draft some. But, like, the, adding more talent is, is important. Young talent that's on controlled contracts is important. But they don't have room for five rookies on their team this year. Certainly 
Um, they've said that on the record multiple times, which I think says a lot. And they, those picks do have value to, to move around, move up, right? Could they package a couple of them together and get into, you know, the mid-teens, low-20s range? Could they just trade them for future picks even, at, you know, for a similar reason why rookies are important, like to just kicking the can down the road and getting a 2025 first-rounder or something or 2027, that way that you get a – cheap influx of talent when Halliburton and all those guys are being paid already. You know, that could be smart. There's just so many ways to handle it, but it seems like making all three of those picks would be very ill-advised in their current situation. They want to win next year. They don't have the roster spots to do it. It's just, what's the right trade? Is it trading up? Is it trading out? Is it trading for an established wing or forward that can fit your team right now? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer with what the best move is, but they just they ha- they almost have to do something given the situation they're in, and I think at least two of those picks will be on the move just given the Pacers' current setup. I mean, they, they have to do it. Tony, who is Indiana's most valuable trade piece in terms of being coveted elsewhere, not named Halliburton or Matherin? <laughs> I was going to say, uh, unfortunately, the answer is Halliburton, but that's not good radio. Um, man, I, it's tough between three things then. I would say their own first-round pick next year. Uh, would be pretty valuable just because, you know, they didn't make the playoffs this year. No one knows who's going to be good next year. And uh, I tweeted this the other day, but, like, every team in the East, stands the Wizards who traded Beal, could be wanting to win next year. Like, even if all these teams get better the way they want, making the playoffs could still be hard, right? So the Pacers pick, who knows where it could end up. Miles Turner, of course, fantastic contract, fantastic player coming off of the season he just had, is really valuable. And Andrew Nemhart, of course, is is immensely valuable as a you know high potential kind of rookie who just nearly made an all-rookie team. Those three stand out to me as the Pacers' best tradable stuff uh, beyond the seventh pick, of course, which is, of course, valuable too. But among the players on the team, I think it's Nemard and Turner. And you know, Turner proved that he could be a really solid contributor. The playoff centers who did well kind of match the stuff he can do uh, on the floor. This year, obviously, Jokic is a different beast entirely. But, you know, those names stand out. Those picks stand out as the stuff that, you know, if the Pacers need to make a splash, could could be involved if they need to make a huge move. But I don't anticipate all three or even two of those things being on the move. Again, Tony East covers Pacers for SI and Locked On Pacers. is a great listen, daily podcast on your Indiana Pacers. Tony's with us right now. Um, Tony, workout schedule-wise today, I think they've got another couple guys coming in. I know the Asar Thompson workout was supposed to happen, but then did not happen. You know, I, I bring this up just to, you know, Benedict Matherin worked out for the team, and by all accounts, it was, I don't know, maybe the cherry on top that kind of cemented their opinion on him. Um, are you surprised at any of the players that have not been brought in for a workout yet in that seven range? Um, you know, Thompson was the last one for me that would have made me say, no, I'm not surprised by who has and hasn't been, you know, brought in uh, for workouts. And this close to the draft, I and mean, he was last Friday, that would have been six days before. Nothing really surprises me. Maybe he's just done and is comfortable with his range. Maybe he has a promise. Who knows? But, you know, you're mostly, to me at least, trying to figure out who these people are, right? Like, that was the standout things for Matherin last year as he wanted to come back in and do that extra work. I think that mentality was really impressive to the Pacers. Like, you you know, the Pacers have been scouting and getting to know these guys for years. Like, the workout can matter, obviously, but it's not like it's that important compared to years and years and years of body of work scouting these guys. So, 
Uh, I don't think it's a huge deal necessarily if they don't get someone in the building, but I think they would obviously like to do it to get to know them in a more intimate setting. But I, uh, they've brought in 63 guys. I mean, it's un- that's more than will be selected. Like, they did an unbelievable job of doing their diligence this year and getting eyes on everybody. And because they have so many picks, they kind of had to. So uh, I'm not surprised at all by how their approach has been done. And I, outside of Asar Thompson, I'm not really surprised at all that anybody uh, did or did not make it in the door for them. All right, last one from me. Uh, more likely they trade seven for a veteran player or they trade up higher in the lottery? I would say for a veteran player, just because of their goals to be better and uh, what it looks like their timeline has become. But if they trade it up, I would understand too. They've got a lot of extra picks to do it. Tony, doesn't it feel like if Charlotte takes Henderson two, Portland's at three, right? Yes. If Brandon Miller's there in Portland on the clock and Portland's on the clock at three, doesn't it feel like Kevin Pritchard's at least making a phone call back to his old stomping grounds and saying, "Yeah, that would not not surprise me at all." I mean, Miller's about as perfect of a fit as you can have in this draft and would fit any team. And you know, a three and D baseline with creation upside, and everybody saw the forty point games with Bama. I mean, man, he'd be a fantastic timeline fit with the Pacers as well. Yeah, they got to make the call. They got to try. I lied, Tony. Any trickle-down effect with this Bradley Beal thing, Pacers-related? Uh, I mean, <laughs> he got moved for nothing, basically. I mean, right. I would, it's hard to even say so. You know, maybe Chris Paul gets rerouted somewhere, and there's more to this eventually. But, uh, no, the only trickle-down effect is my, my favorite childhood team becomes more depressing once again, Kevin. I, I was going to ask you that. Why are you a, or why were you a Wizards fan? I was a big Gilbert Arenas fan. I got to say hibachi when I would shoot the ball in my practices in middle school. You know, love Gilbert Arenas. Well, don't know if that would have been the best role model for you to follow. So thankfully, you <laughs> I deviated. Can't say that was a smart choice by young Tony. No, but that is what happened. No, well, thankfully for your uh, new fiance, uh, you did not continue down that path. Uh, Tony, great <laughs> stuff, man. I know Thursday I, all week long is going to be busy. Thursday is going to be a late night for you. So appreciate you providing draft insight for us here the last couple of weeks, and looking forward to talking to you afterwards to recap things. You got it. Thanks for having me, guys.